Hello, and welcome back to the New Books Network in Science, Technology, and Society. I'm Chris Gambino, your channel host. Today, we'll be talking with Dr. David Montgomery about his new book, Growing a Revolution, Bringing Our Soil Back to Life. Dr. Montgomery, thank you for joining us on the channel. Oh, sure, Chris. It's no problem. I'm I'm looking forward to it. Dr. Montgomery, I'd love if you could talk to our audience a little bit about yourself, give a brief background, kind of tell us how you got to where you are and what exactly you're up to. Yeah, sure. Um, you know, I'm a, a geologist by training. So I, I um, studied uh, the processes that shape the surface of the earth. I'm the kind of geologist that's known as a geomorphologist. And that's what I teach at the University of Washington in Seattle, where, where I live. And uh, what a geomorphologist does is they study the evolution of topography. So why mountains are the shapes they are, why they're the height they are, what forms pools and rivers that salmon live in. And a big piece of geomorphology is understanding the processes of soil erosion, how landscapes erode, because that's how they change and evolve. So I got into thinking about soils kind of from a very different perspective than most people who uh, write about farms and farming and soil kind of things. I came at it from the geological end, from the bottom up in thinking about it. And as a geologist, I'm trained to think about, you know, long periods of time. So my sort of uh, entree into thinking about the world of sustainable agriculture and soil building sort of came from those perspectives, which sort of has colored uh, my um, uh, angle and writing and I, 10 years ago or so, I started getting into writing more uh, books for uh, a m- more broad audience, not just for my academic peers, but sort of so-called popular audience books. Uh, and in part because I enjoy writing. It's fun. You get to think about stuff, learn stuff, try and synthesize things, put good stories together. Um, and the story of our earth and how it's changed and how we're changing it and how that influences us is kind of at the heart of the things that I tend to write about. Excellent. Thank you for that. And in the introduction of your book, you kind of give us a a bit of a reason why you wrote it. Would you mind telling our audience kind of how you came to write this book? Yeah, it's sort of a long um, story that I'll condense into sort of a brief bit because it's this uh, Growing a Revolution is kind of the third book in what uh, my wife and I now lovingly call our Dirt Trilogy that uh, looks at how people have treated soil in the past, which I wrote about in a book called Dirt, the Erosion of Civilizations, about 10 years ago that came out. And that sort of folks, kind of book you might expect a geologist to write about soil. It looks at uh, back through human history and looks at the effects of land degradation on human societies, with the bottom line being that societies that did not take care of their soil did not persist um, over time frames that a geologist would consider significant. Um, and uh, that sort of got me into thinking about problems of land degradation, um, and it's rooted in, in part based on experiences working around the world and noticing that in landscapes where the soil had been degraded historically, the population remained impoverished generations later, sometimes up to thousands of years after the initial degradation of the land, looking at places like you know classical Greece or the uh, areas in the Middle East. Um, and those kind of perspectives really got me into thinking about soil and writing about it. Um, the second book in that that dirt trilogy, the hidden half of nature, I wrote with my wife, Anne Beclay, and that was a book, she's a biologist. And when you think about 
what makes for healthy, fertile soil, it's the, the marriage of geology and biology. Those are the sort of two pieces that together make soil healthy and fertile. And in that book, we explored the development of new perspectives on microbial life, bacteria and fungi, both in the soil and in the human gut, and the parallels in how those microbial ecosystems, those microbiomes, as they're known, benefit the health of the host organism, whether it's uh, in a plant in terms of the root microbiome in the soil, or whether it's in the human gut in terms of our own microbiome that has been sort of in the news in the last few years as people are discovering uh, you know, all kinds of the things that our internal microbes do for us from you know, regulating uh, a lot of our bodily functions, uh, even related to depression or anxiety, obesity. There's lots of connections in terms of a disturbed or perturbed human microbiome. And that book got it, gave us the perspective on, um, so what is the new science behind understanding those areas? And they set up the new book, Growing a Revolution, uh, that bringing our soil back to life subtitle. Um, because when you look at how to rebuild healthy, fertile soil, you have to take that understanding of microbial ecology that we wrote about in the hidden half and use it to solve the problem that I was writing about in the dirt book. And that basically was the setup for growing a revolution where I started to ask the question of, can we restore fertility to the world's agricultural soils in a time frame that, um, is socially relevant. So not the millions of years that would be, you know, geologists are accustomed to thinking about, but could we actually rebuild healthy fertile soil in our world's farmlands in the next few decades, the next century or so? And it's an important issue because if we look at the state of the soil around the world today, we've already degraded something like a third, some estimates go higher, of the world's agricultural land to the point where it's difficult to actually use it agriculturally to grow food on it anymore or to graze on it. And that's obviously a big issue when we face uh, a growing human population on a planet of limited size. Um, so the question of how we're going to be able to continue to feed the world into the future, how to make agriculture sustainable and productive enough to provide for all the people we expect to have on the planet is really the central question underpinning growing a revolution. Uh, and to basically look at that, I did something that you know you might expect a geologist to do. I went and did field work. But in this case, that field work was going to farms around the world that had already restored fertility to their land and asking the farmers, what did you do? Show me your soil. Let's dig a hole in your soil. Let's dig a hole in your neighbor's soil. Um, and I'll take my sort of geological training and eyes and try and filter the commonalities between farmers in, in Africa and Central America and across North America who had already demonstrated they could rebuild healthy, fertile soil and look for the commonalities of what were the practices, what are the principles behind it, and what's the potential for not only rebuilding soil fertility, but for parking carbon in the ground, for reducing groundwater pollution, for growing healthier, better food. There's all kinds of side benefits that can come from restoring healthy, fertile soil. And those are the issues that are all wrapped up in growing a revolution. Thank you for letting us know how you got to this place. I, I hope I'm not outing you here, but in the introduction, it seems like uh, you've self-proclaimed yourself a former dark green eco-pessimist. But your research for this book has led you to some very amazing conclusions. And what I would argue is maybe most importantly is this idea of hope. And so what I want to do is move through this book and 
as you mentioned, talk about your travels, what you saw, the people you spoke with that generated this, this newfound hope for humanity's future. And in, in starting that conversation, um, this is a plug for for dirt, the erosion civilizations. the The beginning chapters of uh, a growing revolution, the book we're talking about right now, seem to be a high level kind of overview of that book. And I think it's important. You talked a little bit about it, but could you give us? Could you elaborate further on what you found in that book? Kind of what this foundational setting is for the book we're talking about today, growing a revolution with kind of what you noticed in history that's kind of set us up to this place of what do we what do we need to do there's a recognition that we need to do something and give our audience a better understanding of, kind of what happened to get us to this point yeah and, and you're right that the start of growing a revolution does uh sort of review and recap at a high level the uh, the essence of the dirt book um and the reason is because that dirt book really sets the stage for the need for soil restoration becoming a global imperative. Um, and I can say that because having done the research in uh, for writing the dirt book, what I basically documented there was a pattern throughout many societies in the past of farming practices degrading the land to the point that it undercut the stability of those civilizations. Um, and we can look at, there's a lot of factors that um, contribute to sort of the demise or downfall of civilizations that, you know, be familiar to readers, things like uh, droughts uh, that, that influenced the early Egyptian dynasties, uh, climate shifts that like drove the Vikings out of Greenland. Um, the, uh, um, po- you know, politics, the usual sort of human bad behavior of wars and not being uh, uh, polite to one's neighbors, those kinds of issues. But there's, in writing the dirt book, what I realized that there's a environmental stage on which human history has played out that is greatly reflected in the condition of the land. And that societies that had an abundant supply of healthy, fertile soil on productive land relative to their population size were set up for success and growth, whereas societies that had large populations and degraded land were basically less resilient and more vulnerable to those influences of things like drought, uh, invasion by neighbors, uh, inability to to fend off um, uh, hostile attacks. In other words, the state of the soil is actually a key piece of understanding the longevity of civil of human civilizations at, at a global scale. And we can and the dirt book goes into examples from around the world from Mesopotamia to classical Greece, uh, the Roman uh, the Roman heartland in the empire North Africa, the American Southeast, uh, the original agricultural uh, heartland of, of China, um, Mesoamerica. There's places all around the world where the problem of soil erosion and soil degradation has played out to the detriment of the society that whose practices were involved in degrading the land. Um, and this is a perspective that really sort of fueled uh, what, you're, what uh, I'd called my sort of uh, dark green eco-pessimism. Because after writing the dirt book, I struggled with the final chapter because uh, it has the potential to be incredibly depressing. You know, societies around the world have degraded their land. Now we're doing it at a global scale. And so what's going to happen next? Okay, I struggled to find the, the optimistic um, ending to it. And I, I basically was arguing that what we needed to do in agriculture was to get um, no-till farming, farming without the plow, and organic farming to actually work together as a, as a new kind of system of agriculture. And 
The reason to argue for no-till farming is that the villain of the dirt book turned out to be, of all things, the plow. Why? Because the plow does something to the soil that makes it vulnerable to erosion. It inverts it. It, it makes it, you know, it turns the soil over when you, when you plow through it. You're preparing a sort of a fresh, bare field for planting. But if you look at most natural landscapes, uh, grasslands or forests, there's very little bare earth. Nature tends to clothe herself in plants, and that's for a very good reason. It, it holds the soil in place. Those plants generate organic matter that builds fertility of the soil, that lets the plants grow better. There's these positive feedbacks between uh, plants covering landscapes, the health of the soil, and then the health of the plants that the plow undoes over a short time period. And what that does is it leaves the land vulnerable to erosion by wind or rain, and it helps break down organic matter by oxidizing it, exposing it, um, and you get a little burst of microbial activity breaking down organic matter, decaying plant and mineral, uh, that decaying plant and animal matter, um, which is how that material gets recycled into nutrients that new plants can take up and keep it in biological circulation. But if you draw that down too fast, you can degrade the fertility of the land over the long run. And in the dirt book, I documented that that had happened to society after society around the world. And you could predict from the time scales involved with soil erosion, how long an agricultural civilization ought to last. And the answer turns out to be, oh, you know, a thousand years plus or minus 500 or a thousand years. Um, so, that, you know, you look at societies around the world, big agricultural civilizations had lasted somewhere between about 500 and 2000 years, a time frame that is pretty close to what you'd get from a predictive one in terms of soil degradation. And at that point in writing the dirt book, I was like, okay, well, what's the future of agriculture globally? We've got to figure out a new way to, to farm that does not degrade the land. Um, and it took me uh, literally about 10 years to get to the point from being a pessimist at the end of writing that book to then being much more optimistic that we can solve the problem of land degradation and figure out ways to farm that will build soil health and fertility as a consequence of growing a lot of food for people. Um, and that process really involved visiting farmers around the world who had already made the transition, who demonstrated that there's a different way to farm that can build soil fertility as a consequence of farming. And that's the story that I tell in Growing Our Evolution. So, you know, I think I start the book with some something like, are you ready for an optimistic book about the environment? Um, when you look at environmental issues around the world today, it, it can be kind of hard to be an optimist. There's a lot of things that are going in the wrong direction. But there's really good examples if you go and you look and you find them. There's really good examples of people who are changing farming practices in ways that can help not only rebuild the health and fertility of the soil, but can help pull carbon out of the atmosphere and put it back in the ground where it can uh, work to fuel soil fertility that can reduce uh, nitrogen and phosphate pollution in our waterways, that can increase the biodiversity on farms and get more predators back to eat um, insect pests, and that also can actually grow um, uh, healthier food for us to eat. So I've gone I've had this evolution from being fairly pessimistic by looking back at the history of past societies to seeing a path forward so that we do not have to root, so that we won't necessarily repeat those regional stories of failure and collapse at a global scale. And we kind of have this century to figure it out and operationalize it. And that's why I was so excited to meet farmers around the world whose inspiring stories are showing that it can work not only for the environmental aspects, 
but for the economic aspects, for the farmers as well. Because for farming to be sustainable, for any style of farming to be sustainable, it has to actually be profitable for the farmers. They have to be able to stay in business as farmers to keep those practices going. And what I ran into in interviewing these farmers was a set of common principles that can guide a new form of agriculture, a new regenerative agriculture that can not only work environmentally, but works economically today. So right before we get into talking about some of those principles, if you would, throughout the book, I really want the audience listening to be an interdisciplinary group that is seeing agriculture as a whole, seeing farming as a whole, not staying divided in kind of these silos of conventional versus organic. And in the book, that's kind of the conversation you have over and over again is erosion and soil fertility. These uh, these issues in this health matter are are really across both. And, and no-till is really something across both. So in getting into that conversation, you kind of start it with these myths of modern agriculture and then talk about kind of what's under the earth, which you gave us a little bit about, but could you tell us more about some of these myths and how moving away from these myths, but into seeing the things that are mostly unseen, it's really easy to see what's on the landscape, but the, the, the underground economy, as you term it, is really what we're after in this no-till practice. Yeah. I mean, that's the part of, um, agriculture that we've kind of taken for granted in developing the the system of modern conventional agriculture that's so widely used today is that we've basically been taking the soil for granted. Um, And why? Well, it's out of sight, out of mind, it's underground. And and soil life, a lot of the critical elements of soil in terms of thinking about fertility are, are microscopic. They're bacteria and fungi. And, you know, we have this double problem of things that are out of sight and out of mind, what, what Ann and I called the hidden half of nature in, in the book on, on the microbial connection that we wrote. Um, it's very difficult to get excited for most people about things that are below ground and, and they can't detect or see with their senses. It makes it a little abstract. Yet it turns out that those things are really important for maintaining the fertility of the land over the long haul. And yeah, one of the big themes in the book was that a lot of the arguments that we have about the future of agriculture are sort of framed with this uh, sort of a simplistic organic versus conventional framing. And, you know, one of the things I learned in writing the dirt book is that just because farming is organic doesn't mean it's sustainable. And, you know, I'm pretty confident of that because Roman farmers did not have agrochemicals and Monsanto. They were basically armed with the plow. They were organic farmers, but they plowed too much. They degraded their land mechanically through the style of farming that they implemented. And so one of the big uh, themes that I return to uh, in Growing a Revolution is that we need to think about farming practices through the lens of what they do to the health and fertility of the soil, what they do to the life in the soil and the soil's ability to continually regenerate new life uh, and to grow new crops. Um, and, and that framing, you know, a lot of organic practices fit really well with that framing, but not all of them. And the tillage part, the plowing doesn't fit very well, especially if you're on any kind of a slope. You can get away with plowing on a river floodplain because if it floods, It'll bring new siltons and and um, and mineral matter with those floodwaters, but you get up outside of floodplains on hillsides, and as soon as you start plowing, you've basically started the clock running down on erosion um, for uh, for degrading the soil. And there's places 
such as like Iowa in the U.S., where they've eroded about 50 percent of the topsoil by the best estimates I've seen uh, in just like, you know, 100, 150 years of, of intensive tillage based farming. Um, and that's pretty, pretty sh- shocking because to a geologist, 100 years is almost like a blink of an eye. That's a very fast change in the surface of the earth. And that's, you know, if you're thinking about the longevity of human societies, we've got to be able to maintain farming for longer than century timescales to be able to feed generations well into the future. Um, so the um, uh, connections of farming practices to the state of the soil was one of the really big uh, themes that had developed in Growing a Revolution. And there's really sort of a, uh, if you think about practices that are tailored towards cultivating the beneficial life in the soil, the bacteria and the fungi that actually benefit crops, that help with providing nutrients to crops, that help with uh, teeing up their defensive systems, uh, those kind of practices are the ones that can actually um, restore and rebuild fertility to the land. And they should be common to both conventional and organic practices if they're, if we're intending to use them over the long run. And what I found was that the suite of practices that are founded on going to no-till, so not plowing, um, by planting cover crops and by integrating diversity into one's crop rotations, those are sort of the three basic principles that all the farmers I visited around the world with their varying styles of farming practice, they all adhered to those three principles, no-till, cover, keeping a diverse set of crop cover crops, having the ground covered at all times, and having a diversity of plants in their crop rotations or in their cover crops. Um, those three things really worked pretty amazingly well to rebuild the health and fertility of the soil, and that allowed farmers to reduce their fertilizer bills. Uh, They didn't need as much. They could reduce their pesticide bills because they didn't need as much. And so what I found was conventional farmers who'd adopted those three principles into their practices started to move closer to organic farming um, because they were not using as many agrochemicals because they didn't need to. And if they didn't need to, they didn't want to bother paying for them. Um, And that would help the bottom line on their farms. And Adopting those principles can help organic uh, farms become more sustainable by limiting the erosion that often comes with uh, with tillage, which is still a primary means of weed control on most organic farms. Thank you. You even highlighted some of the things we're going to get into later. One of your latter chapters is this organic dilemma, and we will cover that in a little bit more detail. But I want to go back to kind of this oldest problem chapter and and one of the first people you introduce us to is is guy swanson and the the tour he takes you on throughout kansas and i want to make the point and hopefully you can talk to us a little bit about it but when i hear no-till and and imagine when the audience who has not a ton of familiarity hears no-till they think about um, no technology maybe or no mechanization but when Walking with Guy Swanson and and who Guy Swanson is, can you tell us a little bit about how that might be a, a, a misperceived fallacy, um, a misperception of of what really no till means? Yeah, sure. I mean, no till. I mean, is essentially shorthand for trying to minimize the disturbance of the land during farming practices. 
And so it's not going back to, you know, medieval farming practices or, or no technology. And one of the neat things about Guy was that he's, he's involved in um, uh, precision agriculture, which is essentially how to use technology to more efficiently do things like apply fertilizers. Um, and so he, he basically works for a company that is that um, sells a um, uh, fertilization uh, systems for no-till farmers that allow them to um, uh, use far less fertilizer by putting it right down where their seeds are. Instead of like spraying it all over the whole field, it's like a micro application of fertilizer right to where their seeds are planted. And so, yeah, one of the big sort of misconceptions, I think, in, in arguments around the future of agriculture is the, that sort of tension between thinking that proponents of more environmentally friendly farming are asking us to go back to Stone Age farming or medieval farming, whereas uh, technology is sort of only in the service of you know, large scale modern agrochemical um, agriculture. And I think that distinction is, is sort of false. You can use technology, you can use science in much more environmentally friendly farming practices. That's a major theme of the book is that we actually have to use the science we now know in terms of microbial ecology to better manage the soils in both, whether it's in conventional farming or in organic farming. Um, and I would basically argue that our, our modern system of very uh, disturbance heavy, sort of tillage heavy, chemical heavy farming practices is rooted in the science of the 1940s and 1950s and has kind of ignored a lot of what we've learned about soil biology since then and that we need to modernize our use of science in farming. And when we think about doing that, we're going to be trying to couple these sort of, you know, what I call the ancient wisdom of practices such as cover crops and no-till. These are Those are not new ideas. They're ideas that were uh, integrated into traditional farming practices all around the world because they worked pretty well to help sustain fertility in the land. But if you couple them with tillage, with, with plowing, you're still eventually degrading the soil. We have a lot of new technologies now for how to implement no-till and, and also for doing this precision agriculture with smaller uh, fertilizer inputs. And I think the real key to the new style of regenerative farming is figuring out how to take the benefits of modern science and technology along with the wisdom of ancient practices like, um, like cover cropping and a, a diversity of rotations, rotating crops. And getting those to work well in a new system of agriculture that combines the best of ancient wisdom and modern technology. Thank you for clarifying that for the audience. And as we move to Ditch the Plow, which is one of your chapters here, we start to talk about green manure. Can you define green manure for our audience and then talk a little bit about your experience with Dr. Dwayne Beck? Sure. Um, you can think of green manure as sort of a, a decaying plant matter, mulch, compost, those kinds of things, where if you if you um, think of manure uh, the way we normally think about it, out of a cow, for example, as a way to take plants that have been consumed by the cow, and then you take the, the manure and you're returning fertility back to the land with that manure, um, you can do the same. Microbes will do similar things in terms of breaking down uh, plant matter and, and making it readily available for new plants to take up. Microbes will do that in the soil. And you can kind of think of the soil in a way as an external rumen for a plant. It's, it's a, almost like an external stomach for the plant, for plants in that it digests organic matter 
the remains of once living plants and animals that because they had once been living, they have the elements within them that new life needs, particularly the micronutrients, uh, things like iron or copper or zinc um, that plants can't grab from the sky the way they can get carbon out of the atmosphere through photosynthesis. So plants will build their bodies by through photosynthesis combining water they, they suck up from their roots with carbon dioxide that they uh, get from the atmosphere. Those things get merged through photosynthesis to build the carbohydrate building blocks of plants, uh, the sort of the, the sugar structures on which um, uh, the, uh, plants are composed. But plants need a lot of other things to grow healthy as well. And those are mineral elements, which ultimately come from rocks. And so soil and the life in the soil facilitate getting those min those elements out of rock and soil particles but they also break down the dead stuff the organic matter the once living things in soils that are, they can be recycled into the, the raw materials for new life when they're made into soluble forms that plants can take up so life in the soil plays a big role in doing that and organic matter is sort of a big reservoir of of elements that life needs to thrive, to grow and to be healthy. Um, and so take basically taking care of the soil is the key innovation in farming that we can bring a sort of new ideas to in terms of cultivating the beneficial life in the soil. Um, and it really kind of boils down to growing enough biomass on site that you can use that as green manure. Uh, as the way to essentially feed and fuel the growth of crops. Um, and that's where cover crops come in in a big way. So you can also use um, uh, real, you know, real manure, uh, animal waste, is incredibly good at rebuilding fertility of the soil. So some of the farmers that I visited had been um, sort of bucking the trend of the last hundred years and bringing animals back into their fields where they're growing uh, row crops, for example. And you were asking about Dwayne Beck. He was one of the first farmers that I visited. He, he um, runs Dakota Lakes Research Farm uh, through South Dakota State University. Um, and I saw him talk at the World Congress on Conservation Agriculture back in, I think it was 2014, when I was just starting to research Growing a Revolution. And I was like, oh, I got to go visit this guy. Because <laughs> the cover of the dirt book is one of those um, Dust Bowl era photographs that shows, you know, farm equipment with, with sand blowing over it, you know, very apocalyptic uh, look. Dwayne is farming in that same region that that cover photograph was taken. But when I saw Dwayne talk at the World Congress on Conservation Agriculture, he was basically presenting a very different story than what I wrote about in the Dirt Book when I covered the Dust Bowl era from the 1930s in that area. Because what Dwayne was showing was that he had worked out a system of farming that basically depend, you know, relied on those three principles of no-till, cover crops, and a diversity of rotations. He'd worked out a, a system of farming for farmers in his region that allowed them to go no-till, that allowed them to use far less fertilizer and diesel and pesticide, less than half of what their conventional neighbors used on all three of those things, and they were able to maintain their crop yields. What that meant is that they were spending less on inputs to grow just as much in a harvest, the form of um, 
where the income from the farm is derived. And of course, what that means is if you're basically, if your income is the same, but your expenses are lower, your profit is higher. And that really intrigued me um, because if these more environmentally friendly styles of farming are actually more profitable for farmers, that provides a very clear and obvious incentive for more farmers to adopt them. Um, and so I went and visited Dwayne and he was very generous with his time sort of teaching a geologist about farming and, and the system that he had um, had helped to pioneer in that region. And I was impressed. We, we did went on a couple hundred mile drive around the region before visiting his farm. And I only saw three plowed fields on that entire trip. They have really started to transform agriculture in the area around his research farm by demonstrating a new set of practices that actually worked, not only for the land and its fertility, but for the farmer and their bottom line. And this isn't just in the U.S. Let's give a, a more global context and with a little bit of background. You you give a quick quip on this notion that I think it's a number that most people have heard of or seen um, around this added billion that need to be fed come 2050. And it, you point to kind of the declining population trend in more um, developed nations versus this whole population that's kind of going to grow is going to come from the African regions. And what does it look like to feed these persons, um, these this billion in 2050, from more local or regional agriculture within Africa? And you you. You tell that story by talking with Dr. Kofi Boa, a.k.a. Mr. Mulch. And so I'd wonder if you could kind of talk us through taking it to a more global context in Africa. Yeah, I mean, that's that's the, the, um, the right question to ask, because when you look at population trends around the world, most of the developing world, the population has stabilized in terms of its, you know, the replacement rate uh, births are about the 2.1 or, or lower per couple, um, which is widely considered the replacement rate where the most, um, where the lion's share of global population increase over the next 50 to 100 years is projected to come from simply from demographics is in Africa. And so when you ask the question of, you know, how will we feed the world in 2050 or 2100, um, you know, a very pertinent aspect of that is, well, how will um, people in Africa be fed and how will they feed themselves? And this is a question where uh, I, I was wrestling with when I left Dwayne Beck's farm because he had showed me these methods uh, with the no-till, the cover crops, and the diversity of rotations, working with sort of big technology on twenty thousand acre farms in the American um, in the American Midwest or West. Uh, and I was, I know, okay, well, it shows that that can scale up to large sizes, but how would you do this on small scale subsistence farms in rural Africa? And Kofi Boa was the gentleman that I went to visit because I'd also seen um, him talk and was very impressed with what he'd been doing at the Center for No-Till Research near Kumasi in Ghana, in equatorial West Africa. And um, Kofi, he's, he's a very inspirational figure. He, he um, really wanted to figure out how to move people in his region uh, beyond their traditional farming practices, which were based on slash and burn agriculture, the idea that you clear a little patch of forest, you can burn it off. What that does is it um, 
releases the mineral elements and the vegetation back into ash in the soil uh, as essentially as fertilizer, which can then spur the growth of a crop. But you can only you can only do that for a couple of years on a piece of ground before you would need to um, let the jungle grow back and nature refertilize, re renew the fertility of the land. And so what do you do once your population gets large enough that everybody's farming the same piece of land every year? And this is what essentially had been happening around his village. And they'd been degrading their soil for a couple generations. Um, and he, in talking with some of the older farmers in his region, um, it's where his, his fascination with mulch came from because they had been essentially mulch farmers. They, would, they mulched their soil intensively. Um, as a way to help rebuild its fertility. And that works by both keeping water in the soil by, um, if you're in the hot tropics, you don't want to have bare earth because evaporation will really sort of dry out your soil. Mulch helps keep the water that falls on the land, but it also provides a source of organic matter for microbes to then convert into soil organic matter um, and to convert into uh, nutrients for new generations of plants. So Kofi went to... Um, the uh, University of Nebraska to study no-till farming and then went back after getting his master's degree, went back to, um, to Ghana to run a, a research and demonstration farm uh, it, it, around his, his um, native village. And what he's done is figured out ways to do that combination of no-till and cover crops and diversity, but do it at very small scale on subsistence farms. Um, and what that looks like in terms of practices is very different than what uh, the practices that Dwayne Beck was using because the farmers that Kofi works with are not, they're not mechanized. What they have are, you know, a tool that I would call a machete. They call it a cutlass, but it's basically a, a long blade that you can cut vegetation or you can dig a little hole in the ground. And so their version of no-till farming is that they use their cutlass to open a little hole for seeds and plant them by hand. Um, they're growing um, a diverse set of crops in the same fields. They would have sometimes six to eight different crops growing in the same field from ground covers all the way up to plantains uh, as a canopy cover. Um, so they're growing very diverse sets of crops. They were not tilling anymore, always keeping the soil mulched. And what he'd done is basically taught them a way of farming that was bringing their soil organic matter level back up, improving their soil over time. And this gave them a more um, reliable crops, gave them better harvests, and it worked for them because these are farmers who you could not expect the sort of style of modern agrochemical intensive agriculture to work for a very simple reason. They don't have any money. And so the idea that you would you know, build their farming practices on uh, you know, buying plows or um, intent buying a lot of fertilizer or buying patented seeds or buying a lot of herbicide or insecticides it's just a non-starter because they lack the capital to actually purchase those things. So whatever your views of conventional versus organic agriculture are, um, the way that we have been um, developing conventional agriculture in the Western world can't simply be transferred to be and expected to be productive uh, for those farmers, even without thinking about the environmental consequences. And what Kofi had taught them is a way to integrate that uh, minimal disturbance, cover crops, and, um, and a diversity of crops into a style of agriculture that was very productive. It actually took less time because you don't plow. That saves a whole lot of time. 
Um, and this had really transformed the lives of uh, many of the people in the village around uh, his demonstration farm. It's sort of a privilege to be able to walk around there with him in the village because everybody knows Kofi. He's transformed their, their local economy. And this is, you know, it's sort of you could view it as a first step on the road to truly sustainable development. Um, and one of the big trends in modern agriculture in the 20th century was that as Western methods went to the tropics, uh, a lot of subsistence farmers were driven off the best lands because the ones who could actually afford the new technologies were not small scale farmers. They were the large farmers. I was you know, very impressed with how the, the methods and techniques that Kofi's developed translate into bettering the lives of subsistence farmers in the very part of the world where we need to think about how to do that in the next few decades. And when you wrap up this conversation with both Dwayne Beck and Kofi Boa, you say, uh, and, and let me read it here, let me quote, both Dwayne Beck and Kofi Boa use herbicides and fertilizers all bite sparingly, but can no-till work in conjunction with organic farming at scale. Can you tell us why that is such an important question to ask and answer, and then tell us a little bit about your experiences with the persons at Rodell Institute that are trying to answer it. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I was, uh, you know, when I at the end of the Dirt book, what I was arguing was that we have to figure out ways to get no-till farming to be feasible in, in an organic system. And the reason being that if you look back through history, a lot of the farming that degraded uh, soils worldwide was organic farming, and the problem was the overuse of the plow. So if you look towards making a sustainable style of environmentally friendly farming, you sort of go, oh, well, organic's the answer, but how do you use organic without using the plow, which was the, the primary tool of weed control in organic systems and is mostly today? And the place that's really been pioneering the development of organic no-till methods is the Rodale Institute in Cutsdown, uh, Pennsylvania. And so to answer, try and answer the question of, well, can you do no-till in an organic system? That's where I went. Because you'll often hear um, when uh, people who are sort of familiar with uh, uh, conventional agricultural practices, when you talk about no-till, it's often used with a whole lot of herbicides. Because if you're not plowing to limit weeds, how do you limit weeds in, um, in that system? And that's where uh, an awful lot of uh, genetically modified crops uh, uh, engineered to tolerate the herbicide glyphosate came in. That really facilitated the adoption of no-till in the conventional agricultural community. So how would you do it in an organic system? Is it even feasible? That's the question that I went to Rodale to ask them because they've been researching it and publishing on it for, for quite some time. And um, Jeff Moyers, their, their uh, director there, was very generous with his time, as was um, um, Chris Nelson, uh, who you know, walked me through uh, a lot of their um, practices there. Um, and I was very impressed with what they'd been able to do. They've been running a, uh, an organic system, a no-till uh, organic trial for, I think they're pushing 30 years on it or something, uh, where they're basically growing crops organically and with conventional methods side by side. And somewhere through this experiment, they added sort of no-till versions of that. And what they've been able to demonstrate is that they're able to grow comparable crops, comparable yields, uh, using fewer inputs in a no-till system. Um, but they still have the issue of weed control. And so what they're 
will do. They've invented this sort of a method uh, called a roller crimper, which is basically a like a steamroller drum with these big metal chevrons uh, uh, welded onto it that you would put on the front end of your tractor that the back end has your no-till planter, so a specialized device to just plant seeds down into the soil without plowing it. And what the roller crimper does is it they use that to terminate or kill their cover crops and then plant right down through them. And the idea being that if you're planting cover crops to outcompete weeds, you're basically, um, well, I called it planting weeds, but if you kill them before they become, before they go to seed, then what you've done is you've uh, planted a cover crop, terminated it, fed it to the soil microbes who will then digest it and feed it in turn as green manure as fertilizer to your cash crop. So what they've done is they've basically figured out ways to, instead of paying for fertilizer, instead of paying for diesel for plowing, they're basically planting cover crops in the same pass that they, um, whether they're terminating their cover crops in the same pass that they plant their cash crop, uh, and they're using the cover crops as a, as a fertilizer replacement, which saves them money. Um, they're also finding that they have some perennial weed problems in organic systems. Uh, and, you know, the one of the ways that they have been dealing with that is every few years they'll do a little minimal tillage. Um, so I started basically seeing that, hey, there's these common elements in which conventional agriculture is adopting these principles and using less chemicals. And organic agriculture can adopt these principles and plow less. Um, they still have sort of different emphases, um, but they're moving closer together through the adoption of these of these principles. Thank you for that. And now I want to do two more things before we wrap up because I recognize we're, we've taken up a big chunk of your time. But in in being at Rodale, it seems that I think. Dr. Kristen Nichols was the chief scientist. She kind of broached this idea of wanting to bring cattle back to the land. And so it seems as though in the latter part of the book, we've ditched the plow, but now we're bringing cattle back to the land. Um, so talk to us a little about your experience of that, because I know it was very personal for you. I know that you were very skeptic at first, but there was something in your experience with some of these people, particularly kind of the Browns, that changed all that for you. Yeah, yeah. Chris was very generous with her time. And, and one of the things that she was flirting with trying to do at Rodale was to start bringing livestock back into their operations. Um, and in part, uh, as a way to facilitate the the digestion of cover crops. And I and it was visiting sort of at, on the heels of visiting Rodale. I went off to visit um, Gabe and Paul Brown at their farm at the Brown Ranch in Bismarck, North Dakota, which is a place where Chris had worked uh, with them in the past. And I wanted to visit them because they were really uh, using the livestock as a tool for regenerating native prairie and also for boosting the fertility of their cropland. And that ran absolutely counter to my sort of training and experience in thinking about uh, cattle as an agent of land degradation, where, you know, overgrazing, degrading land. And I, I'd done some work in my PhD in the Northern California coast ranges, um, just north of San Francisco in the Marin Headlands, where there's these deep gullies that were incised in the 19th century that I was able to document were, were you know, a direct result of 
dairy grazing operations in the late 19th century. So I came into thinking about, you know, the effect of cattle on the landscape from the perspective of thinking, oh, they're agents of destruction, um, you know, agents of soil degradation. Well, in visiting the Brown Ranch, it was very illuminating to see how different that story can be depending on how you graze the livestock. Because Gabe and Paul were basically using livestock to rebuild the fertility of their land and through that manure, the real, the sort of the brown variety, not the green variety. Um, and it was very, very effective. Um, they had taken their soil organic matter content from the sort of the average of, of their neighbors when they were starting to uh, a few decades ago to now we're at the point where it's this very rich black earth um, where in places it has eight up to 10% carbon. Um, which is getting back into the range of what native, you know, the high end of the range for a native prairie in the American Midwest. Um, and what was their secret? Well, basically what they were doing is they were letting their cattle graze off their cover crops. Um, and that basically, they were using the livestock as uh, what I like to call sort of four-legged self-propelled methane digesters, where they would basically convert those that biomass into manure and get it back and cycle those nutrients faster. And they were also using what's known as intensive rotational grazing, a different style of grazing on to, to restore the diversity of life, a diversity of plants to their, uh, to their prairie uh, paddocks. And that was an eye opener to me as well, because what it, it and it makes sense. And when you think about it, uh, if you basically have uh, the, the problem with those dairy operations in Marin County had been that if you think about the California coast ranges, if you're a cow, where would you like to be in the valley bottom where the water is? Because it's kind of dry on the hillsides. So that's where all the cows congregated all the time and it degraded the valley bottoms. So you had a, a you know intense concentration of grazing that always stayed in the same place. What Gabe and Paul were doing on their farm that was so radically different is they were doing intensive grazing, but moving the cows around a lot. So you would they had a lot of little electric fences where they're sort of shuttling cows from one area to another on a very regular basis. And it's a style of grazing that's designed to emulate the activity, uh, the grazing activity of, say, the buffalo on the plains, where predators would you know, sort of keep them bunched up and they would move around and graze off an area to completely eat it off. But then they wouldn't come back for a year. So it was intensive disturbance and then a long recovery period. That's the style of grazing that Gabe and Paul uh, were using on their ranch. And it was transformative in terms of not just the soil, but also in terms of the plants that were growing on it. Um, so I came away from visiting them going, wow, okay, so the problem with livestock isn't so much that they're an agent of land degradation. The problem with livestock is how we graze them and that there's ways to actually use livestock to accelerate rebuilding soil fertility. Um, in that are pretty innovative, uh, but that work pretty darn well, um, judging by, you know, the pits that we dug and the, looked at the soils on their ranch and the pits that we dug and looked on the, their, the soils on uh, neighboring farms and ranches. Um, they've done a pretty remarkable job at restoring fertility to their land. And they did it in a manner that actually increased the profitability of their farm, because instead of paying for fertilizer now, um, Gabe is, is selling beef and selling eggs from the chickens that, are, that sort of follow the cows around the fields. Um, so he's basically using the cows to offset what had been fertilizer expenditures, and he's then selling the beef. 
So Dr. Montgomery finishes up the book with a chapter called The Fifth Revolution. Um, I highly recommend you pick up Growing a Revolution. It's a fantastic book. We've only talked about it briefly here. And I really appreciate a lot that's gone into it. It will enlighten you about soil. It will teach you about the the hope that comes with a lot of the practices that are going on. And we've talked just a little bit about all the ways that soil are important. One of the things that we kind of skipped over, but that was a part of a lot of these chapters was it's not just about nutrients, not just about microbes and all the complexity that goes on in this environment underground, but it really impacts water infiltration, which is huge in combating erosion. Um, What I want to do to finish up, Dr. Montgomery, since we've taken up so much of your time is our traditional closing question. What exactly are you working on now? Oh, yeah. Well, I'm glad you asked. Uh, surprisingly, another book. <laughs> um, the um, what we're uh, I'm working on a new book that is uh, provisionally titled You Are What Your Food Ate. Uh, my wife, Anne Baclay, and I are writing it together. It's it's a it builds on the books that we've been talking about to basically ask the question of do these style does this style of regenerative farming actually grow food that's healthier and better for for us, for people? How much does it matter what your food ate? In other words, the, you know, what is the diet of the crops that are grown in the soil? And you can think, yes, you can think of them as having a diet. We wrote about that in the hidden half of nature. Um, and does it matter? How much does it matter how the, the meat you may eat uh, was grown? Or if you're a fan of those sort of the new meatless products, well, does it, how much does it matter how the, the corn or soybeans or peas or whatever is, is in those was grown? And that book, hopefully we'll finish it uh, mid-2020. Uh, we're engaged, Ann and I are traveling around doing interviews, um, visiting farms, and doing some testing of, of food quality grown on regenerative versus conventional farms. And so far, there's some very interesting results. Um, I think it, it should be a very interesting book. We're digging into the history, the science, and then um, having to go out and do some of our own uh, food testing on it because... Strangely enough, we have better data from the veterinary world on the effects of food quality on animal health than we do in the human world. We're often focused on sort of what we eat in terms of the human diet, but we're trying to look at the question of, you know, not only that, but the question of how much does it matter how what we eat was actually grown. Wow, that's fantastic. Completely closing the loop looking at nutrients and nutrition across the board. I'm really looking at the food system as a whole. Really excited to hear about that book. Excited to get the opportunity to read it in the future. Once again, I just want to thank you for joining us. This was fantastic. And for the audience, please go out and grab Growing Revolution. Well, thanks, Chris. It's been a pleasure to talk to you.